Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today is Semantic Threat Researcher Bridget O'Gorman. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing some new vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange Server, more details emerging on the Reveal ransomware shutdown, and a breach at the Australian telecoms firm Optus. Yeah, but before we get to those, um, Dick, maybe we should look at some research that we published ourselves in the last week about the Wichita Espionage Group um, and an interesting bit of new malware that they're using. Uh, but maybe before we kind of get into the blog itself, perhaps we should just talk about Wichita a little um, beforehand. So I guess you want to tell the listeners who they are first. Yeah, yeah. Let's um, let's start with the background. Um, Wichity is our name um, for a group that was first um, documented by ESET um, earlier on this year, um, and they call them Looking Frog. Um, so they put out a report. Um, I think it was in April of this year, um, where they concluded that the threat actor, uh, known as uh, TA four one zero or TA four ten. I don't know how people generally uh, pronounce that. Uh, it was actually composed of three distinct uh, groups. Um, so, looking frog, uh, flowing frog, and jolly frog. They call them. Uh, so TA410, uh, um, it was kind of like, it was seen as quite a broad um, espionage operation that uh, had some loose links to the Cicada group, um, which is also known as, as APT10. Um, so I guess uh, what ha- happened there is there was like, you know, there was some more granularity in, in the understanding uh, of what's happening. And then three distinct um, uh, groups emerged out of that. Uh, so Wichity uh, is one of those three groups, um, and their activity um, is characterized by the use of uh, two different pieces of malware. There's a first stage backdoor known as X4, and then a second stage payload uh, that is known as Lookback. Um, and ESET said they'd seen the group targeting governments and diplomatic missions, charities, and, and various industrial and manufacturing organizations. Okay, very good. I like the name Jolly Frog. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it sounds like uh, you know an, an ice cream or or, or, or kids uh, kids sweets or, or candy as as the uh, Americans would call it. Yeah, it's not it's not overly mm-hmm. threatening though, I suppose. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, okay. So I guess you want to talk about what we ourselves saw then. Yeah, what we have seen is a continuation of that activity um, that had been seen earlier on this year. Um, And along with that, there was some new tooling. Um, So between um, February and September of uh, this year, we uh, found evidence that Wichita had targeted uh, governments of two different Middle Eastern countries and the stock exchange of um, a large African nation. Um, The attackers, um, they exploited the proxy shell and proxy logon vulnerabilities um, to install web shells on public facing servers. Um, And then they moved from there uh, to stealing credentials, moving laterally across networks and uh, installing um, malware on, on computers of interest on the networks. Okay, and what was the malware we saw them using? Well, the look back backdoor that I mentioned earlier, um, that continues to be one of their main payloads. Um, and we saw it, you know, leveraging um, it in these attacks too. But we also found a new backdoor, um, which we call Stegmap, um, and that actually leverages um, the rarely seen technique known as uh, steganography um, to extract its payload. Right, okay, so do you want to explain what steganography is then? 
Yeah, um, steganography is essentially a technique that's used to um, hide information within an image. Um, and it actually it hit the headlines about 20 years ago, I think, um, when there was lots of reports that Al-Qaeda was using it to kind of surreptitiously um, send messages um, over the internet or post them on public forums. Um, but in this case, it, it's actually code um, that's hidden in an image. Um, so what the attackers did was they got a pretty innocuous looking bitmap file um, that was like, um, I think it was like an old logo for Microsoft Windows from, from um, I think, 10 or 12 years ago. And um, within uh, that bitmap file um, was, was hidden um, the, the code for the payload um, for Stegmap. So what happened was a, a DLL loader um, downloaded the bitmap from GitHub, and then the payload was decrypted um, with an XOR key, and, and then it went to work. Okay, interesting. And um, you said steganography is fairly rarely used. So why is that? Is it kind of a hard kind of technique to use, or why, what's the reason behind that? Yeah, that's that's quite an interesting question. Um, so I guess the answer is, is that um, it's not that easy to do, um, but difficulty isn't the only factor, I think, you know, so that there's loads of different ways um, that malware authors can can um, obfuscate or, or hide their code, and this is just one of them. Um, but I guess in this case, uh, where steganography really came into its own, uh, was that it could be used to hide something in plain sight on the public repository like Git, uh, GitHub. So it's a bitmap file. It doesn't look in any way suspicious. Um, and then the advantage of being able to host it on GitHub or any other public service um, that you can kind of uh, put files up on is that there's less of a chance that it'll raise suspicion than if um, a computer downloads something from it. Um, you know, it doesn't look like sus suspicious traffic at all. Okay, yeah, interesting. Um, but we did find some other new tools as well, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We found, we found a few um, little utilities um, that has helped us broaden our knowledge of the tool set uh, that Wichita uses. Uh, so, for example, we found a custom proxy utility, uh, and this implements a protocol that's kind of like SOX 5, um, but in this case, the infected computer acts as the server and connects to a command and control server that acts as the client instead of the other way around. Um, then they also had their own custom uh, port scanner uh, and, and a persistence utility, um, which worked by um, adding itself to auto start in the registry and masquerading as um, an NVIDIA um, display uh, component. Okay, great. I think that's a pretty... Um... Good overview of that blog, Dick. So maybe we should move on to another topic I think you want us to talk about, which was an announcement this week that an organization in the US defense sector had been compromised by um, multiple APT groups. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. Um, on Tuesday, um, the US um, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, um, this is known as CISA, um, they said that multiple APT groups um, had obtained access to the network of an unnamed defense sector organization. Um, and then that some of those actors may have had long-term access to that organization. Um, the organization wasn't named other than to say that it was in the de defense industrial-based sector, um, but that's enough to suggest that it was 
you know, possibly a strategically significant target. And by the sounds of it, it was a fairly serious breach. Yeah, it does sound like that. And do we know how it happened in the first place? Uh, yes, we do. Um, well, for the most part, we do. Um, so some of the attackers, um, they gained initial access to the organization's um, Microsoft Exchange server um, as early as mid-January 2021. Um, and in that case, um, these early attackers, the infection vector remains unknown. Um, however, um, further attacks uh, began in March 2021 um, by attackers who exploited um, four newly patched zero-day vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange Server. Um, these were um, announced at the time as being having been exploited in the wild by a group that we call Ant, and they're also known as Hafnium. Um, so anyway, these additional attackers uh, exploited these vulnerabilities and they installed um, 17 um, China Chopper web shells. Um, so, um, yeah, as I mentioned, um, prior to their disclosure, the vulnerabilities were being exploited by the Ant Group. Um, but once once it came out, once news of those zero days came out, uh, loads of groups kind of um, jumped on them and, and started exploiting them. Um, so that's how we, I think multiple APT groups got onto the network of this organization. Um, then apparently some of the attackers um, uh, used uh, the open source toolkit uh, known as Impacket to uh, maintain persistence on the network and, and uh, they are also deployed a custom um, data exfiltration tool called Covalence Stealer. Um, and then later on, um, some of the attackers installed a backdoor that's known as Hyperbro on the Exchange server and two other systems. And, and Hyperbro uh, has previously been associated with the Budworm group that's also known as um, Emissary Panda. Yeah, interesting. And I suppose continuing down on that kind of espionage or likely espionage team, there was also a new threat actor um, discovered as well recently that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, um, this one... I'm kind of fascinated by this one actually because um, it's um, it's some research by our peers at Sentinel One, um, and they found a, a kind of shadowy threat actor that they call Metador, um, which appears to be operating um, undetected for a number of years now, um, and they use pretty sophisticated malware, um, and they've been seen attacking um, telecoms providers and, and ISPs and some universities. Um, so the reason I say it's pretty sophisticated is that they have um, malware platforms that reside entirely in memory. Um, and they also seem to maintain pretty good um, operational security. Um, and by that I mean is that their infrastructure seems to be strictly siloed um, and it's only, you know, one uh, piece of infrastructure is only used per victim. Um, so it's very hard to, uh, it would be very hard to pivot off that infrastructure and discover more targets, for example. Um, so Metador was discovered um, during an investigation into um, attacks um, against a single organization that had been compromised by at least 10 known Chinese, Iranian, and uh, espionage actor, uh, actors. Um, these kind of um, organizations, um, we, we do see them from time to time. They're kind of like flypaper for, for lots of espionage actors. Uh, so yeah, they found 10 different actors on the, on the network of, of this organization, but they also found some artifacts pointing to the presence of an 11th unknown actor. 
Um, so the said Metador, um, it uses two uh, main Windows platforms. Uh, they call them MetaMain and uh, Mal Malfada. Um, and they both run entirely in memory, as I, as I mentioned there. They don't never touch the disk in an unencrypted format. Um, and I guess MetaMain, it's um, described as their main implant framework um, that's used to maintain persistence. And then it's used to load uh, Mafalda, uh, which is a backdoor with more um, extensive functionality. Um, and then they had a couple of other tools, like a custom implant for bouncing connections um, in an internal network to an external command and control server. And there was also some, some Linux malware involved as well. Yeah, it's all, you know, it sounds like pretty sophisticated activity, really. So do we have any clues as to, you know, who these attackers might be or where they might be from, I guess? Yeah, I mean, very, very few. Um, uh, and, it, you know, it's it's a little bit baffling. And that's why I, I kind of found this um, this research fascinating. Um, so, so Sentinel-1, they, they found evidence of attacks against targets in the Middle East and Africa. Um, but then, like, a wider reach can't be ruled out due to be to the, 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 the segmented nature of, of its infrastructure. Um, and they were unable to attribute it to um, a particular nation state. Um, they said they found snippets of code um, that were used uh, by the, the attackers that suggested that they were like fluent uh, English speakers and Spanish speakers in the group. And there was pop culture references uh, that were relevant to, um, that would be known by like maybe people from the UK and um, Argentina. And then there's like a couple of other surprising details. Um, so like everything about this group seems to be um, very advanced um, and they seem to be highly disciplined, but then they did some things like um, they used RC4 encryption, which is lots of no weaknesses. Um, so it's kind of an odd choice for a group that is in many ways um, so professional. Yeah, definitely an interesting, an interesting discovery there, I would say, all right. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'd be, I'd be interested to find out more about them or see if more emerges um, in, in the next couple of months. Yeah. Uh, but let's turn to you, Bridget, uh, because uh, there's been lots of things that you want to talk about as well. Um, and um, one of the biggest stories this week, I guess, is um, the discovery of um, two more um, zero-day bugs in Microsoft Exchange. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Microsoft Exchange Server. Um, yeah, so this story, I think, broke kind of around the end of last week, uh, Thursday or Friday, I think. Um, I think there was a bit of chatter online before Microsoft itself then released kind of an advisory about, about all of this. So the vulnerabilities, which are CVE 2022-41040 and CVE 2022-41082, basically they can allow for remote code execution. And they were uncovered by researchers at um, Vietnamese cybersecurity firm GTSC, which reported them to Microsoft before then publicly disclosing the bugs last week. So the first one, CVE 2022-41040, is a server-side request forgery flaw, while CVE 2022-41082 allows for remote code execution, uh, remote code execution when PowerShell is accessible to the attackers. And threat actors are reportedly um, chaining the zero days in order to deploy China chopper web shells on compromised servers for persistence and data theft, as well as for lateral movement to other systems on victim networks. Um, although Microsoft did point out that you did need to have authentication access 
to the vulnerable um, exchange server before you could exploit either of the two vulnerabilities. Um, so Microsoft Exchange Service 2013, 2016 and 2019 were all impacted by these ones, which, as we said, were being actively exploited in the wild. And Microsoft said it had um, seen activity related to what it said was a single activity group in August this year that was able to achieve initial access um, and compromise exchange servers by chaining the vulnerabilities um, in what they said was a small number of targeted attacks in which they did see the chopper web shells um, installed to facilitate then basically like hands on keyboard access um, so the, which the attackers then used to perform active directory reconnaissance and data exfiltration and Microsoft said that it observed these attacks in fewer than 10 organizations globally so it seems to be very highly targeted activity and they did say that this was most likely state-sponsored activity and um, so they didn't give any further kind of um, attribution beyond that um, and while these vulnerabilities do require authentication the authentication needed for exploitation can just be that of kind of a standard user. So obviously standard user credentials can be reasonably easily acquired by threat actors, you know, by password spraying attacks or buying them obviously from, you know, previous breaches as well, of course, by exploiting potentially uh, another way of accessing will be, will be exploiting already known vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange Server if the server was unpatched, obviously such as the proxy logon and proxy shell vulnerabilities that uh, we already mentioned there earlier and some security researchers have taken to referring to these latest vulnerabilities um as proxy notchell which i think um came from the security researcher kevin beaumont also known as gossy the dog who uh, was writing about these this discovery quite um quite early on in the time yeah and i think um as we we know well now um we often see an uptick in attempts to exploit um, vulnerabilities, uh, particularly ones that are on kind of public facing systems like Exchange uh, once they're publicly revealed. Um, so have we seen uh, a lot of activity since news of these vulnerabilities broke? We haven't seen, I would say, anything, you know, hugely significant in terms of like a major attack or anything yet, I would say. But there have been, I guess, a few interesting developments um, since a few, the vulnerabilities were revealed. Uh, for one, apparently, um, scammers impersonating security researchers were selling fake proof of concept proxy nutshell exploits on GitHub. Um, scammers are always quick to kind of jump on you know anything that could potentially make them some money. So in one case, we saw several now removed GitHub accounts that were promoting these fake exploits, while another scam account actually impersonated Kevin Bowman to offer a fake proxy nutshell proof of concept for approximately four hundred and twenty dollars in Bitcoin. However, you know, it was pretty apparent that that would be fake as a real working exploit for Proxy Notshell would likely be worth far more um, than that with Ceridium at the moment offering apparently around a quarter of a million dollars uh, for Microsoft Exchange remote code execution zero days. So uh, you wouldn't be getting one for $420 if they did exist. And we also did see CISA coming out pretty quickly with a warning about these vulnerabilities as well as adding them to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalogue, which... Um, generally also means federal agencies are obliged to take steps to remediate these vulnerabilities um, by a particular date as well. Um, but patches haven't been issued for these particular bugs yet, have they? No, and because of that, some of the technical details of the bugs have been kind of kept under wraps um, until patches do become available. Microsoft did release mitigation guidance for these bugs in its initial advisory on the matter uh, last week. However, a security researcher with the Twitter handle um, Yang uh, tweeted evidence earlier this week showing that Microsoft's temporary solution 
for preventing the exploitation of the vulnerabilities wasn't actually efficient and could be bypassed with reasonably little effort. Um, other researchers then subsequently, um, including GTSC that initially uncovered the funds, did confirm these findings. Um, Yang himself suggested an alternative mitigation step, which they said would cover a wider range, protect from a wider range of attacks. And in response to those findings as well, Microsoft did also um, update its mitigation guidance, and you know hopefully we will see a patch patches for these vulnerabilities uh, being published soon too. Yeah. Okay. Um, and let's um, move on to the, the third thing that you wanted to talk about, um, which is um, the breach of uh, Optus, who were a big um, telecoms company in Australia. Yeah, so this probably sparked my interest because I used to live in Australia and was an Optus customer at the time. Um, but Optus revealed on the 22nd of September that it had been the victim of a cyber attack. Now, Optus, as you said, is the second largest telecoms company um, in Australia. There wasn't a huge amount of information available when this kind of breach was initially revealed, with Optus uh, stating of its breach notification that it was investigating what it called the possible unauthorized access of current and former customers' information. And it said that the data that may have been exposed included customers' names, dates of birth, phone numbers, email addresses, and for some customers then as well, um, home addresses, ID document numbers, as well like driver's license or password numbers. However, it said there weren't any passwords or payment details um, accessed. And it said that its services were continuing to operate normally. And it was working at the time with um, Australia's Cybersecurity Centre and the Australian Federal Police in the aftermath of it. But the story developed quickly enough then, uh, because the next day on the 23rd of September, a hacker using the alias Optus Data published what they said was a small sample of the stolen data on the breached hacking forum. And they demanded that Optus pay them a $1 million ransom or said that the data of 11 million customers would be leaked. Um, which bear in mind, the population of Australia is less than 30 million. So 11 million customers is, is a lot. Um, and the hacker then followed uh, up this kind of threat by releasing the stolen data of approximately 10,000 Optus customers for free on the hacking forum, obviously to kind of increase the pressure on Optus to pay pay them some money. Um, the security reporter, Jeremy Kirk, he actually spoke to the alleged hacker who claimed that they used an unsecured API endpoint to steal the data rather than breaching the company's internal systems. Um, however, it seems that scrutiny kind of got to the hacker and scrutiny from law enforcement about the breach spooked the alleged hacker because they posted a new message on breach on the 27th of September in which they said that the stolen data will no longer be sold or leached to anyone and that they had deleted the stolen data and um, saying there were too many eyes on the breach. And this followed uh, the Australian police coming out to say that they were working with the FBI uh, to investigate this breach. So it looked like the hacker... Uh, got a bit of a fright when that was announced. Um, and just yesterday then, it was reported that there was a breach at uh, Optus's main telecoms rival, Telstra, as well. But that seems to have been significantly less impactful um, than the Optus breach. Uh, the data there was obtained following, actually, Telstra itself was a breach. It was a breach of a third-party provider and was apparently from 2017 and apparently only included the first and last names and email addresses of uh, employees of the company from that time who had signed up to employee rewards program and Telstra said that none of its systems were compromised and none of its customer data was impacted. And they also told Reuters that they believe this activity was an attempt to profit from the Optus breach and uh, no doubt the attention that it received to try and kind of put pressure on Telstra to uh, maybe pay off some money to, uh, you know, keep this breach under wraps, but uh, it doesn't seem to have been 
um, in any way serious, really, compared to the Optus breach. Yeah, yeah, and it definitely sounds like that um, uh, Optus hacker was, was quite spooked. Um, so they, got, they got a fright, yeah. it sounds like, all right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but if law enforcement tracks them down, I'm not really sure if uh, they're deleting it or <laughs> refusing no, to sell it to anybody who's going to make much of a difference. Yeah. No. Um, and finally, um, we got some extra insights um, into the events that uh, led up to the uh, Re- Revil ransomware shutdown recently too, didn't they? Yeah, so um, Trelix, which was, or Trelux, I'm not actually sure of the pronunciation, um, which is obviously the formerly McAfee, and they released a report, uh, I think last week maybe, in which they revealed, um, I suppose, a little bit of extra information that we didn't kind of know previously they revealed how it, what they described as a disgruntled insider who had received payment helps to give an insight into the operations of the Revil, Sundergibi, ransomware family prior to that group's uh, takedown in late 2021 and early 2022 as well. So the security firm's report claims that an unhappy rebel insider reached out to Trellex after it published a blog about the earnings of the group in October 2019. And Trellix says that this insider gave it information about the tactics, techniques and procedures that were leveraged by the group. They provided screenshots of the Revel backend panel, as well as information about where affiliates ac- uh, access the backend panel via Tor, which ultimately allowed the Trellix team to actually be able to find the actual IP address of the panel. Um, and the Trellix team had so much information they were able to compile about a 55 page report that they were then able to um, share with law enforcement. Um, and law enforcement then acted against Revil, as we know, in October 2021, and several members of the gang were also arrested in Russia in January this year. Um, there have been indications in recent months that Revil may be back with new binaries, um, with new binaries spotted, I think, in about May this year. But the level of activity is not touching the heights that were once reached by the group, um, and it appears likely that whoever is behind this recent activity is unlikely to be um, a member of the original Rebuild group, really. So it's probably just more someone potentially, you know, leveraging the name for a bit of a bit of clout. But certainly, it hasn't reached anything like the levels of activity we once saw from that group. Yeah, it's actually remarkable how um, frequently um, falling out or conflicts between various members of ransomware operations or just you know uh, disgruntled former employees seems to be kind of be the main source of weakness for, for these groups and, 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 and uh, has lead, led to a lot of um, kind of fairly damaging leaks for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Conti was similar that it was an unhappy, unhappy former developer that kind of led to their downfall as well. Yeah, yeah. And there was, um, there was some uh, back and forth uh, with, with, with Lockbit uh, recently as well, where um, there was uh, the source code leaked and... Uh, it seems that it was um, some disgruntled developer for, for Lockbit who, who did that too. Yeah. Should always keep your uh, your colleagues and your employees happy. Isn't that right, Dick? <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, on that note... Um, uh, that's about all we have time for. Uh, but if you've been enjoying our podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel. And if you'd like to read our latest research, um, including our work on Witchity, uh, you can check out our blog, which can be found at semantic-enterprise-blogs.security.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat-intelligence. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. But until then, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>